Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. You join us on Firebreak Friday. We are in the Hiraith pub, Cymru, this fine evening as we discuss everything that's happened in the last week or so of Welsh politics. Hello, Rich. Hey, Matt. Hello, Kerry. Evening, Matt. Evening, Rich. Firebreak. Rich, how do we know it will work, this firebreak? Do you want to go in a little bit, explain a little bit about what is actually happening and what we think is the likely reasoning behind it? Well, I think the firebreak is really interesting. It's, a, it's the kind of thing, as we've talked about here before, the Welsh government has really been pushing as, the, quite frankly, the only government that seems to care about the future of the union and actually working in a four nations approach within the UK. It's been desperately like a, like a jilted uh, boyfriend or girlfriend waiting for the call from Boris Johnson to try and work together and make some magic together, but it hasn't come. So, you know, it takes something quite extraordinary to push the Welsh government to act unilaterally to do something. And it has decided on this and actually fair play to them, despite the fact that it was leaked last week, they actually did something the UK government doesn't do, which is they, they planned it before they announced it. They consulted and not everybody's happy with it. Obviously there are you know, everybody ranging from COVID deniers to political opponents that just want to decry, and anti-devolutionists, of course, that want to decry that everything is terrible about it as an idea. But the idea that we try and, for a time-limited period, do something really hard uh, to try and constrain the growth of the virus, not to eliminate the virus, and I think there maybe is a question of Welsh GovComs there about what they're actually trying to do with it. That hasn't been the clearest part of it. I think it seems like the most viable option that we have because the, the you know the UK English government model is you know stop and close whack-a-mole kind of stuff without any clear direction or strategic oversight the Scottish government is is almost a little bit close to the English government model so I think it'd be interesting I mean actually this is what devolution was meant to be about we're all facing not just on this island we're facing across the world a really difficult challenge the Welsh government has put a lot of thought into it has consulted widely, and apart from one little misstep that I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute, has tried to think it through. Now, what the test is for, has it been successful? I think that's also another thing that they've maybe not been the clearest about in terms of their communication, because how do we define what the success is there? And I think it's, it's just not clear. It's more clear in Wales because we know that it's finite than it is in Manchester or in the north of England, because they have no idea what's going on. And it's a complete horror show. So I think it'd be interesting. And I think the Welsh government have been largely correct to do what they're doing. But I think that they've also missed a few ideas. And I think, as, as you know, alluding to there, as I'm sure we'll cover in a moment, um, I think they've made a mistake this week, that they, an unforced error in this regard. And it'd be interesting to see how that plays out. What do you reckon, Kerry? Pass this hot potato over to you, mate. It is a hot potato, isn't it? And I don't envy anyone making decisions on this because I think we're in that uncharted territory. I, I'm with you, Rich. I think um, I think they're making the right decision, but I, I am semi-torn. You know, I think an awful lot of Wales have got very low rates, and I can understand why businesses in those area where livelihoods, their income, their the ability to to keep going are dependent on these decisions and but I'm very conscious that I'm in a position where you know it's quite easy to say let's lock everything down and just carry on with the paycheck still coming in at the end of the month so I've got a lot of time for people who are who are nervous in those parts of Wales where they're reliant 
on industries we're just shutting down for 17 days they've had a terrible year so i'm very conscious of that but the reality is we're looking at decisions which are made to save lives and those making the decisions it's going to be a hard tell because if they're successful we'll never know how successful they've been but if they're not successful it'll just be trying something else in a few weeks time you know it's an incredibly hot potato it's not just us discussing it the decision makers don't envy them at all matt have you got a take on it i mean uh, yeah nothing too massively different from you guys i think we all recognize it's a horribly tricky position to put yourself in where you're essentially having to choose between your economy and the health of your citizens and health is much more than the virus by itself isn't it it's how we are able to cope with the economic fallout of this that will impact on people's health and health and, and livelihoods later down the road i can really understand why people wanted to keep the regional lockdowns the the more localized lockdowns but the problem with that was i think people were just crossing those boundaries and, and spreading it i mean if i lived in keridigion i'd i'd feel pretty aggrieved actually given that they've had such low low levels of the virus for so long to now be told that they're going to be put down into lockdown again because have you have you both seen uh, one of our previous pod guests jim jones is uh, not i wouldn't say on the war path but he's come out very very strongly and speaking in the english media he was on a radio station in liverpool this week bemoaning the position his industry is in yeah, I can't imagine it's a particularly nice part of the year anyway for the hospitality and tourism industry. But to now be told that you're definitely not going to be open is is horrible. And it, when he was on the pod, he was already really quite concerned about the tourism industry. So I, I can only imagine what another additional lockdown is going to make him feel. The tourism industry is it's a, not a great part of the year, but we are in the October half term, which is yeah, sure. one of the big last hurrahs for the for the season. Mm. I, I think that's one of the reasons why we have perhaps gone for a full Wales lockdown. It's to keep those kind of tourism hotspots safe from other parts of the UK during that half term period. If I can press the uh, Mark Hooper buzzer to quote Mark, as I'm sure he'll enjoy. Uh, do you remember when we were talk- when we? I can't remember which episode it was when he was on, but we were talking about the financial powers of the Welsh government and and the biggest flaw in the devolution settlement. Really, at this point, is the fact that the Welsh government can make all of these restrictions. It can you know it can engage with you know all manner of economic actors and education system, public health system. It can make provision for industries that would be adversely affected by this policy. But they write a nice letter to Rishi Sunak, can you support this policy that we'd like to do? And Rishi goes, no. And and so you have this massive problem that's created purely because the constitutional problem is there. If the Bank of England was in fact the Bank of the UK and each of the four nations was able to you know, have that direct relationship with the central bank, then the Welsh government would be able to put in position, alongside the public health policy for the firebreak, it would be able to put in, in, in place financial reimbursement for those industries adversely affected or seriously adversely affected. And that would stop people like, like Jim having to go on the warpath about it. And frankly, as well, the Welsh government would like to do that. I'm sure if you ask them, would you like to have some way of borrowing against the Bank of England or Bank of the UK, as it really should be, then 
they would probably say, yes, of course. In fact, they may well have even asked that. I'm not sure. I can't actually remember. And so this is why another example where this kind of weird quasi-federal sort of half-baked devolution settlement is not actually inhibiting the way that the government can perform, but it actually, it really undermines when you're trying to do something that you think is genuinely in the best health of your population you then make your population incredibly angry because they're financially suffering from it and you can't do anything to change that you've just got like a, a letter from Rishi Sunak saying no yeah it's become a little bit of a meme on on social media hasn't it it's like you can't afford to have this lockdown well give us the economic power <laughs> to have it no it's ridiculous it seems so counterintuitive to, to not let the Welsh Gov be allowed to borrow against yeah. their interest, really. Yeah, I mean, it's ridic- really ridiculous. So ju- just to pick up on what I was saying earlier, you, you would expect me to complain about Welsh Government comms. Um, <laughs> the, the things that w- I think that they have struggled with, I think they did a good job in terms of the policy preparation, from what I can see, which is no just a casual observation. They seem to have done a really good job. They haven't done the greatest job in signalling what the purpose of it is. We're none the clearer about... Now, what are they seeking to achieve out of this? What is the measure of success? And I think that if we knew that as a population, I think we'd be, I think more people would buy into it. I almost think they could have dug out the thing from May, which was stay at home, save lives, protect the NHS. I mean, that's pretty much what it is now, isn't it? Protect the NHS over the winter. Sure. And you do see a lot of people, uh, and I'm not going to be unduly mean, but it is a lot of conservative MSs who seem to be uh, saying, well, my local ICU only has seven patients in its ICU beds. Ha ha ha. Um, And surely this isn't the basis of a lockdown. It's a terrible R.T. Davis impression. That's your Paul the, Davis impression. Well, okay. <laughs> Who could tell? <laughs> I, I, I don't think I could tell you what Paul Davis sounds like. Anyway, um, that's more of a problem for Paul Davis. It does seem as though there is a... To say it's organised gives them too much credit. I think there's a, there's a, a large amount of people on the, on the right, especially, who are trying to create the impression that there, there's not really a problem. And I don't know why you've done this, Mr. Drakeford. Because, because oh, look, the, the, lum, the numbers are so low. Whereas actually what Mark has tried to do is go, we need to have this now before flu season gets really bad and before the pressure gets really bad with growing numbers of cases so that the ICUs aren't completely overwhelmed and that other people don't die as a consequence. But, yeah. I mean, that's, that's not an argument that they want to make, is it? That's not, that doesn't suit their, their narrative, so they're not going to happily make it. Well, the problem, the problem is that we've, we've already lost the opportunity to do the clever thing as an island, which was to go for an elimination strategy back in March. And in lieu of that, we're all essentially going for herd immunity. That's what the policy now is. And it's just at what rate are we going for that? We're not going the American model, which is let's get everyone, you know, as infected as quickly as possible. So, you know, maybe there's a chance they can win an election. So even within the UK, there is this difference between, you know, the four nations. But there's no way that Wales can actually pursue an independent COVID policy. It's a tricky thing for the Welsh government to do, because I'm sure in their hearts, what they would like to do is say, well, we're going for an elimination strategy. We're going to lock down, isolate any breakouts, and we'll follow New Zealand um, because, you know, that's the, you know, that's the gold standard, frankly, for dealing with COVID anywhere in the world. Uh, but they can't do that. And so it's just a case, it, it, you know, the whole thing is about protecting the NHS, trying to minimise disruption over the winter. When people were feeling it very strongly earlier in the year, pub- the public were on board. And actually to break curfew 
was not was not socially acceptable to do that because the public were on board. What is telling now is you're seeing more and more people who are voluntarily breaking the rules and they don't feel any kind of guilt or shame about that. They're just doing what they want because they've had enough. And that's quite infectious itself as well as an idea. And I think there is a danger here for the Welsh government that they can't keep doing this. They can't keep dipping in and out and doing these things. There has to be a point to it that people can then breathe afterwards and say, okay, well, we've done that, now we carry on. Because if it doesn't work, whatever their measure of success, if it doesn't work, they can't do it again. Uh, and there's no legitimate case for them to do it again because everyone will just say, well, it didn't work last time. So there is a risk here for the Welsh government. And what they, like I say, what they, I don't think what they can do is follow the English model because this kind of rolling continual shutdown with no apparent way of getting out of that is just, you know, recipe for confusion. But speaking of recipes for confusion, uh, are all the ingredients for a recipe for confusion essential items? Let's talk about the uh, <laughs> essential items. So this was, can you can you explain what happened with this? Because I, I I must have logged off Twitter that day, and then I came on, and then everyone's debating like is is a jaffa cake an essential item or whatever? What's going on? I don't. Understand. I mean, I think that's today, isn't it? Still, my brain. I, I've lost all sense of time through lockdown, but I think that is today still. Well, I, I mean, they've they've banned the sale of non-essential items, haven't they? During the firebreaker, so no kettles, no TVs, no bedding, no clothing. Is there a house in Wales where the kettle is not an essential item? Someone, someone raised this with me earlier and said, I mean, if your kettle breaks, you can boil water on a stove. And I said, I'm not an American. You can't make me do that. It's a crime. <laughs> uh, so, I, I mean, yeah, there's a huge amount of people I imagine would find it completely abhorrent to have to not have a kettle. So all these items have been declared non-essential. So all the local retailers, all your... I don't know, I don't go shopping enough, curries and etc. All those sort of places are, are closed. But also what it's made is that uh, made sure of is that if you go to Sainsbury's or Asda or Tesco, their corresponding non-essential aisles are, are closed. And mm. um, they have been covered in thick sheets of plastic from the photos I've seen. Wow. So Which are is quite thick... dramatic, actually. Uh, yeah. So are there thick virtual sheets of plastic over huge swathes of Amazon.co.uk? No. And, I mean, Jeff Bezos is just... I mean, if he's ever heard of Wales, he's, he's very happy right now, I suppose, Jeff Bezos. And because uh, just, it just means that... It just means people will go onto Amazon and buy their kettle, buy their bedding, buy their electrical goods. So this, uh, this feels, again, like a poli you know, a, an area of this policy that maybe could have been identified before time and communicated somewhat better... If indeed, I mean, how much difference does this make? I mean, this is the thing that I don't understand. If people are following, you know, the lockdown guidelines or the firebreak guidance, they're not going shopping for, you know, a new duvet anyway, are they? Because it's not essential. So, sure. so what, what extra benefit is there to the Welsh government putting all these extra restrictions on shops? I mean, is it just to try and reduce, you know, the temptation to go and buy a new throw? I mean, what is going on? I, I just don't understand. I, I think it's to try and stop people just going to the shop for that purpose and that purpose alone, isn't it? It's to stop people going, I'm bored, I'll go shopping. Uh, I've never said those words in my entire life. As no, no, but I'm sure people do. <laughs> I think it's to stop people just making uh, un unnecessary trips. But if they're following the lockdown guidance, then they're not doing that anyway. So this is like a commitment device almost. It's like you can get there, you still make the trip, you walk in the shop, and then you find a, everything is in a giant plastic Zorb ball or something. 
Is that right? I, I, I don't know. How does it, I mean, people are still going to drive, aren't they, to their shop? I mean, there's, also, there's a very good argument to say that if you're using Amazon anyway, people are, you've got, you're going to have a person to grab that item in the factory, to box that item in the factory, to wrap that item, to deliver that item. So yeah. there's still people being involved. It's just that you're not doing it in the... In fact, there's more people involved. Um, yeah. Sorry, Kerry, what do you think? Yeah. I, I'm just a little bit in, uh, in uh, sadness about missing out on the, the little middle aisle for the next two weeks. <laughs> Going in for some fruit and bread and milk and coming out with a chainsaw and uh, a step ladder. But uh, no, the, the essential items, it, it doesn't seem to have gone down well. It seems that, yeah, I saw, I saw an interview this afternoon with uh, Vaughan Gethin and Kay Burley arguing about hairdryers and what's essential and what's not. And you just think, is this slightly surreal when we're talking about locking down the Welsh economy for two weeks? And our health minister's arguing with a, a Sky broadcaster about whether a hairdryer is essential or not. And it's kind of become the story when the story is actually what our government are trying to do to save lives. And, you know, I think we've put to bed that it's not an easy situation, but uh, some of that policy handling, whether we understand it or not, has come from somewhere and it's just been delivered in a fairly awkward way, hasn't it? It's just an unnecessary argument to have. And it, quite frankly, after, I guess, what, a week or so of since the announcement, I think after a week or so of the Welsh Government getting quite good press for doing, I know, a thoughtful consultation, doing all the right stuff, the Welsh Government has got a habit of then putting its foot or collective feet in its collective mouths uh, just at the last minute. I just, it, it, and it's a shame, frankly, um, because then you end up getting Julia Hartley Brewer on Twitter you know, you know, and all of the, you know, the right-wing media then kind of mocking, you know, Wales for what is essential in Wales. It's just, what, what it's just about, unnecessary. What, no, what about that press, though? You know, because the press on has focused today on the essential items, but we often hear in Wales that we don't get a mention in the UK press. But, Matt, you must have seen some of the articles this week. We've even had, um, you know, Toby Young writing about us and... Uh, there's been articles about Wales aplenty this week. What was your take on that, man? Well, we've been blessed, haven't we? Blessed by such lovely writers such as Toby Young. No, it's been awful, isn't it? I mean, there, there seems to be very few uh, journalists based in, 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 in London who are capable of writing about Wales with a degree of policy accuracy. Um, I think Stephen Bush is very good. Historical but, accuracy has been slightly lacking as well. Uh, I mean, that unheard article by, uh, by Polly McKenzie, who's the uh, chief exec of Demos, former advisor to Nick Clegg, who, who decided, I mean, upon further inspection, it does appear as though she lived in Pembrokeshire for a bit. I don't understand why she thought Pembrokeshire was the, you know, the, the solid Tory seats um, as the heartland of Ply Cymru which is not, not quite accurate. Uh, but it's, it, I mean, as the historian, you'll probably be best to explain why it was so wrong. But The unheard, I, I don't think, I think that's one of many, but the unheard one for me, it was, um, was it the unheard one? No, it was, it was one today, uh, Channel 4 historian Maggie something uh, tweeted that uh, there's no linkages between North and South Wales and Pembrokeshire was... Uh, Little England beyond Wales, which is, which is, you know, there's elements to it to be true, but uh, 
you know, I think we we all know about the links between North and South Wales and how the country's made up. And but you know, it's it's very hard as a historian to go into. But the unheard article, like you said, the the focus on Pembrokeshire for Plaid, it was just it, it just doesn't. Um, it just shows that kind of remoteness and just throwing things in there and hoping they're right. I mean, the, the lead for me is that if anybody thinks that there are no connections between North and South Wales, we need to send them on a, on a Wales away trip uh, to Hungary or something, you know, then you'll find out exactly what it's like when you've got the boys from, I don't know, Bargoid with the guys, the boys from Bethesda, you know, they'll, they'll all be on the same side. I, my particular uh, favourite of all the terrible articles about Wales was one in the Telegraph by, I think, Alison Pearson. Um, and and uh, Louise the, Welsh. Uh, the top line on that was, I shudder to think of the carnage that will be caused by this second reckless, morally irresponsible suspension of nearer to normal life. The, the thing that's striking about a lot of these articles is that they have appeared in the sort of telegraph spectator world. And actually, that's been quite interesting because that obviously tells you far more about the kind of people that are not only writing it but reading it than uh, anything else. And rumours that the English slash UK media has woken up to the existence of Wales, I think are probably over-exaggerated. I mean, this is, considering the significance of um, the divergence between the four nations of the UK, even in this week where we've had four blogs and <laughs> and two articles, in fact, probably more now about the fact that you can't buy cattles here, um, I mean, it's still, you know, a barely a drop in the ocean. And I, I, I I try not to get too excited by it, but I think we should thank Theo Davis-Lewis for uh, quoting uh, Here I Th podcast with Carwin Jones. I mean, that's always nice to see. Thank you, uh, Theo. You know, there's reasons to be cheerful here. I don't think it's, you know, there have been some terribly bad takes, but, you know, there's bad takes all the time. Do you think the articles are deliberately provocative? Do you think they're, they're, they're written to uh, get lots of angry Welsh Twitter people to quote tweet them and... No, I, I don't think there's any, I don't think they, they I mean, I don't think the vast majority of those people who are writing these articles care in the slightest about Welsh Twitter people. I think it's more about the fact that they lean into the prejudices and beliefs of their readers who are largely in the southeast of England. Um, and, uh, you know, as somebody who listens to The Spectator on an almost daily basis, just, to, you know, I think for a bit of insight into the world. I actually think this kind of language, I mean, it's being directed at Wales this week, but it's the kind of language that you see directed against, I don't know, Europe, filthy Europeans, except for Sweden, which they love, apparently. Uh, you know, people of the left, people of Scotland, you know, people who vote, you know, for the SNP. You know, it, it, it just happens to be that this, this torchlight is shining on us this week. It'll be somebody else next week. So I think the language is quite typical for the publications that we're, we're talking about. I do enjoy how they think that Wales has somehow been sort of taken over by some sort of... Radical uh, left. Radical <laughs> socialist coup. Yeah. As opposed to the fact, you know, Wales, in Wales we've had a Labour Party being the largest party here for like 100 years. Some sort of random thing they've just discovered that the socialists across the seven are in charge. It's a very odd thing to see, especially in certain articles in, in such as Alison Pearson's, who seem to think we've all gone to pot now. That terrifying old Mark Drake was in charge, as opposed to, as I think you put it earlier in the week, the, the, the sort of calmest yeah. social science professor you've ever met. Yeah, somebody, what's his name, Goodwin on Twitter, had described him as a, was it a vigilante? Oh, yeah. 
It's hilarious. But I mean, you've got to bear in mind that these are also the people that, you know, are living in hope that after a massive 13 years in power, that the SNP government is always, you know, is just one misstep away from crumbling and support for it crumbling because they desperately want the SNP to fail. And they, they appear not to have noticed the fact that Labour has been in power in Wales since 1997. You know, it's, it's, it's not even been on their radar, frankly. And, and I think that is starting to change inevitably now that we start talking about a Welsh Parliament in lieu of an Assembly, because an Assembly always used to mean something less than a Parliament, and frankly it was always something less than a Parliament for the majority of its life. So I think people are starting to notice, and I think, like I say, I mean, much as much as these things are grit in our collective oysters, I don't think it's, I don't think it's anything to particularly worry about, and I can almost guarantee that we're not, you know, people in Wales are not the intended audiences for majority of these these pieces i mean in fact toby young's described himself as a, an english nationalist didn't he yeah. wasn't that it was his great unveiling as if we hadn't guessed that anyway toby <laughs> Kelsey breeze well, should we move on i mean we've talked a lot about the fire break i mean i well, well, and, what i'd like to ask you both is that we've done wales now you know we, we've got a clear policy position which is that 17 day fire break not allowed to buy non-essential goods it's important but i'd let you know that Play parks are open this lockdown, which is a godsend over half term. So it's not all bad. But what, what about what's going on across the border? Wales has been in the press, but frankly, it's been it's been great. Well, it's, it's such a serious topic. You can't say it's been great, but the battle devolution in England is really coming home to roost. What's been your take on the the Manchester Andy Burnham impasse with Boris, Matt? the right honourable Andy Burnham, King in the North, uh, as he is now to be probably titled. I'd always go with Dan Jarvis. (laughs) Um, It's crazy. I mean, a lot of people are annoyed that uh, Burnham got all the attention for standing up to Westminster when Drakeford did it first. I mean, that's fair criticism. But uh, he did it in such a, I, I think, a really open, honest, passionate way. I think he was... And the way he spoke in that press conference, if you saw it the other day when he'd been negotiating or negotiating all day with Westminster, only to be told that instead of the £60 million that was on offer, they were only going to get £22 million. And the way he spoke when he said, we've negotiated all this way down, £65 million is the lowest we can go and still provide all the services that we need to provide, was it was incredible to watch. And I think he... He has been an incredible spokesperson, not only for the Labour Party, though I don't think he's necessarily acting with that at the forefront of his, of his mind, but for the north of England and for Manchester, the greater Manchester area, but for the whole of north of England, he's been an incredible advocate. He's, he's exposed the, I think, inherent game playing that Westminster is engaging in. He said it best. They feel like they're playing poker, playing poker with people's lives. How low can you make me go? It, it just it just chimed with me so so much to, to just to have that that person just lay it down as it as it was and expose that Westminster Tory party for what it is, which is a bunch of cheats. Well, that's a way to punctuate that sentence. This is the first time that we've seen anything like this in England, where a, a regional or local leader has stood up to Westminster. The thing that I think is most salient from a Welsh point of view is that this gives us two insights. It gives us an insight about, as Carwin Jones mentioned on our pod a couple of weeks ago, what might have been. 
if Wales had voted no in 1990, uh, 1997 to devolution, then Wales would be treated now as Greater Manchester and the north of England uh, is uh, right now. And we'd be in the position where we might be able to negotiate slightly about you know, how much funding we get from the Treasury, but there would be no policy control over it whatsoever. You'd have no say in that. And so I think that's quite a useful thing to look at what might have been, but also, uh, and this is where I've become slightly less positive, I think this might also show us where we're going to go in the future. I mean, when this model of what Westminster being able to dictate what the actual policy is and allow, you know, a degree of variation locally is exactly what the Internal Market Bill and the future of post-Brexit UK is intended to create. And that will affect Wales because those powers are going straight back to Westminster and Westminster is building new powers for itself that go above um, and below what Wales can do at the moment. And I think that that's a really interesting dynamic that depending on your point of view, we dodged a bullet in 1997 uh, in that we we carved out a space for Welsh policy to exist but that space is being completely undermined by the behaviour of the Westminster government now. Um, and I think that and if, this, if the Internal Market Bill and similar future legislation follows in the same, uh, the same path, then we run the risk of that's what the UK becomes again, um, an entirely Westminster-led um, centralised state. What do you reckon, Kerry? You, you posed the question. Oh, I, I'm interested in uh, the take you two have got on it. It's just been interesting following it from afar. I'm a little lost on how Liverpool accepted the terms seemingly quite readily. Lancashire followed. Greater Manchester seemed to hunker down and go into to full-on confrontation mode, rightly or wrongly. Day after that, Dan Jarvis's Sheffield region accepted what was offered so it's hard to work out what's what are they all being offered the same terms is there a formula like it's very hard to follow what is exactly going on in the entirety of the the english regional makeup and then today or was it yesterday the the latest financial package has come out from rishi which i thought you know he's still playing a blinder as uh, as chancellor but it's quite easy to do when you're giving away lots of money and to his audience, I think it would have played well. But why did that happen so long after a lot of areas of England have gone into tier three? I'm not even sure whether all of that is applicable to Wales. You know, There's lots of questions which uh, are going to play out over the next few weeks. Just to follow up on what you said there about did everyone get the same deal? No, they didn't get the same deal. And this is actually how, you know, we've seen this pattern with devolution. What Westminster favours is a model where it has a series of bilateral relationships with the different people that it governs. And if you recall, when we went going back to the withdrawal bill a few years ago, 2018, it was only when Wales and Scotland started to working together that they started to build some leverage over the UK government. Because previously... And, and actually, I think the interesting thing would happen, and I, I, I'd be curious to see whether you think about what you think about the viability of this, Matt, because you probably know more about it than I do. For as long as these individual relationships between an individual devolved elected mayor and Westminster continue to be as they are, Westminster always has the upper hand. But what if those mayors of the North all got together and started to you know, negotiate en masse with Westminster? I think that would be absolutely 
fascinating like a union of north of the north there's like someone once said that there's always power in the union or something along those lines um uh, i think it'd be really interesting and actually i think they they could quite frankly mobilize because they're you know they're closer to the people they could actually mobilize a lot of popular support for taking on the westminster government in a way that wales and scotland have benefited from frankly well, Tories are very scared of collective bargaining. <laughs> so, I mean... been waiting for that punchline since oh, you started I smiling have, about two I minutes have, ago. <laughs> I have, I thought about it. I thought I knew it was coming. The, it's in there, yeah, I think you would, you would get a lot more out of it if you all stood as one united force against Westminster. There's, like, there's good politics in it. Just, you know, we're, not, we're going to stand up for our local area. That lot down south don't understand what we are going through. I mean, I saw that slogan you see graffitied on walls in, in Manchester is quite uh, impactful to me, which is the North is not a Petri dish. Um, and I think, they would, I, would, I think they would get much more from the Westminster government if they did act collectively. Unfortunately, as, as it is with Wales, as it is with Scotland, because of the nature of our constitution, if Westminster gets what Westminster wants. So if they wanted to impose lockdowns like they did on Manchester, like they did elsewhere. And lots of other local authorities have said, essentially, we've been bullied into tier three. If, they, if Westminster want to impose it and they don't want to give you any additional money, then they can do that. And if you look at the polls, nothing affects them. They stay at around 40% no matter what they do. So they must have the wind in their sails to be like, well, we'll just continue to act this way, mm. act the bully. Yeah, I, well, you're, I mean, you're right, of course, but, but that's not to say that victories can't be won. I mean, I, I mean, one, that kind of idea of a Northern English, you know, all the Northern English, also the Midlands, I, I don't even know what it's like in the, in the West of England. Uh, I'm not talking about Wales there, I'm talking about actual West of England. It's never been tried before, but if you're, again, thinking back to the early days of Brexit when Theresa May was in charge, and admittedly it's a different kettle of fish then, but if Happy you days. think... Happy day, they're blissful, halcyon days, even. I never um, thought I'd admit that, but yeah, yeah, yeah I'd go back. Fun. I would, yeah. yeah. Um, it, it, when it was like I say, when Wales and Scotland, and you know, although it was tricky at the time, some of the Northern Ireland representatives started to work together, you know, combined with other actors elsewhere in Westminster, in the Lords, even, uh, and elsewhere across the UK, they managed to get some serious concessions. And I think this fever where unilateral action that is a lot of it quite scattershot and not necessarily not necessarily rewarding politically at some point that fever will break and that process could be expediated by the actions of others you know in in either within england in the regional you know the what do they call them devolved authorities no what do they call them in england Combined authorities? Oh, uh, I can't even remember. Anyway, uh, yes. We need a local government. English devolution <laughs> people. Yeah, I mean, it's possible. I mean, you think if they could combine it, it would be so powerful because there would be, you know, the, you know, the, the, the current UK government is dependent on the seats that it won in the north of England in the 2019 general election. If, you know, the vast majority, probably not all, but the vast majority of those directly elected mayors all got together now, the optics of that would be catastrophic for the current UK government. And, you know, you can see how that would lead then to, you know, bargaining leverage. It's ironic, I think, actually, that most of these places voted against having directly elected mayors. They were imposed upon them by Westminster. So I can't imagine that um, 
the Conservative Party ever thought that by imposing a mayor on Greater Manchester, they would have by stealth created one of their most one of their strongest opponents throughout this entire crisis. Well, I mean, weird let, I mean, you could say the same about Gordon Brown and Scotland, his relationship with Scotland, you know, after bringing in Scottish devolution in you know, 1997, 99, and then it, it wiping out the Labour Party north of the border. I mean, that's it's the same thing. I mean, you don't know what's going to happen when you create a thing. It has a life of its own. And, and, and I think maybe the lesson to draw there is you shouldn't do something constitutionally with the expectation that it would be politically beneficial to you. You should actually work on some kind of overarching principle. I, hang on, I've just got to get off my high horse. Oh, <laughs> that's better. Yeah. What, what about post-firebreak um, then, gents? If we're lucky, it brings the, the R8 back down in Wales to an extent. But like you said, Rich, we're still vulnerable to what's going on next door. Where do you see the policy going? You know, there was a big question today, and you mentioned about petri dishes and a lot of the areas of Cardiff, which I'm familiar with, that the rate is high because of the student population. Where are we on uh, students going home for Christmas? Do you think that's going to happen? The op most optimistic scenario is we see a drop in the R rates and then it r rises gradually again towards the middle of the winter and then they end up having to do it again. That's the good scenario. I fear, given the, just the sheer scale of rising cases that we're seeing, I fear that actually will happen is that it'll either just stabilise where it is now or it might even continue to get slightly worse. And in that scenario, well, I hope, they, I hope they're, they're gaming that situation in the Welsh Government now about what they actually do as the next step. I hope they're thinking that far ahead because I think there's a very strong chance that that's where they'll find themselves. Mark has been very clear that he wants to, uh, on November the 9th, go back to quite minimal restrictions. But I wouldn't shock me. They'll be able to monitor the figures throughout this process. It wouldn't shock me if we went into regional lockdowns again after. I, I can absolutely imagine over Christmas there being a loosening. No, no politician wants to be photoshopped as the Grinch on the front page of a paper. So I'm sure that they will let people go see their families for Christmas. But but I, I then I it wouldn't shock me again if there was something in January that was an additional restriction. Yeah, I, I well I mean it, it will come back if it works. Kerry, as our transport board, obviously one of the massive unintended consequences of COVID, we've nationalised the railways by How's accident. That, yeah, by accident. <laughs> How's that happened? And do you and, see that staying nationalised or? And have we nationalised the railways? Or have we yeah. nationalised the operating company of the railways? Good question, Matt. Good question. I, I think the nationalisation of the uh, national operator is what Welsh Government always wanted. I think it was Westminster which wasn't allowing that. So we, we entered into this not-for-profit, but they took profit deal with uh, a joint group of Kelsey Amy, who, you know, behind the scenes, I'm not sure if it's been totally harmonious for the two years they've had it but you know covid has completely changed the face of transport really and i don't know if it'll ever be back to what it was and obviously kelsey amy and welsh government couldn't agree on what they wanted but as rich said i think it is just the operator aspect which we've nationalized and uh, an awful lot of track in wales is under network rail so you could say that that is nationalized but 
Kelsey, Amy, or one part of the two are left with uh, the core value line. So I don't think that's been that clear what's happening there. But I, I don't think Welsh Government would be too disappointed because I think they've got to where they want to be, but at a place where the rail industry just needs so much subsidy just to keep running empty trains. You know, the future of that is uh, is anyone's guess. Do you think this will be part of the well, as you say, there's going to be such a huge decline in numbers on the train. Do you think this sort of thing is 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 going to make the Welsh government invest quicker in sort of community hub working and stuff like that, just to try and kill the commute altogether? That's a very good uh, phrase, "kill the commute," there, Matt. I, I wonder who thought. I'm, yeah, I've I've heard it before, a couple of places, I, I, but I, I, I you know. you'd like to think so. I think there is policy discussions <laughs> going on uh, around you know how we want to work. I think. I don't know if it was Mark Drakeford, but Welsh Government have certainly said that the way they're working and their offices aren't going to be the same ever again. I think there was, um, there was an article with the head of the principality. They don't expect to, to work like they did in the past. So the future is there. As you know, you know, a lot of my background was in co-working local hubs, and I can see that working in the future, especially if government and the public sector gets behind that. But I, I also think that... Um, Last night in Cardiff, I think there was a big agreement to invest heavily into Cardiff bus. So I think there's a, there's a real chance for us to, to review our whole transport system, not just rail, but buses, community transport, where people work, active travel, and you know plan for what will hopefully be a post-COVID world where people can do things differently. And you know, I think we're seeing that, like I say, Cardiff, uh, Cardiff bus got a big investment from Cardiff Council last night. Electric buses. If there's less traffic in Cardiff, buses are quicker. Active travel. You know, this this potential for the the changes in the way we live, work, get about are huge. Whether that will come to pass, do we want to go back to having people on the trains? Probably not, from my perspective. But to make the trains work and have the subsidy have the fear box which make them work, we do need people on the trains, same as we need people on buses. So, you know, there's really difficult policy decisions to be made. Yeah, I mean, I I did occasionally get a Valley's Line train to work and uh, I can't imagine that being COVID compliant for, for some time, given that you felt more like a sardine than a passenger. I imagine you felt the same quite a bit, Rich. Yeah, it was pretty brutal. Yeah, pretty brutal. <laughs> I, I haven't missed it at all. Uh, I've had cause to be in the centre of Cardiff over the last few months um, for work and uh, made um, use of the bike lanes that are there now. Off-road bike lanes uh, in the centre of Cardiff are fantastic. There's not enough of them. If, if we could use the opportunity that we have in front of us to basically Europeanise our city centres and you know towns as well, not just the big cities, but also the towns, so that using a bicycle is or uh, in the case of anybody under the age of 20 an electric scooter is uh, just easy um, uh, and you're not likely to get hit by an SUV at every corner I think that you know that would be a massive win there's no downside to that you make a population more mobile locally with no environmental cost and healthier you know that's a win-win-win and I'm sure should we ever have the opportunity of having someone like Lee Waters on the pod I'm sure that um uh, I'm sure that he'd be happy to espouse those benefits. But I'd be curious to see with what happens with Transport for Wales, though, because, of course, they're here in Pontypridd. Their, their offices have just opened last week here in Pontypridd, and, of course, there's no one in them for the large part. 
Yeah, buses is an interesting one. I mean, there's been talk of re-regulation for quite some time and giving councils the ability to own buses. And it, I, it wouldn't even cost that much to make all buses free, would it? It's only something like £50 million a year, which I'm, you know... It's not, it's not pocket change for us, but for a government, it's not a huge amount of money. All the conversations I've heard for the last few years have been nationalisation, freed buses. And now that's almost not really where the conversation's at anymore. We've, we've completely gone past that. Do you think this has actually changed the way we're going to work in the future? Or do you think people are just waiting until it's safe to pile people back into their offices? I, I think there's always going to be a place for an office, but... It's always going to be about, we've got a chance to give people a better balance. So those who want to use an office and, you know, there's, I've spoken to people about those who are extroverts and introverts, you know, some of the psychology of how people operate. Extroverts want to be in there, rang people, but you've also got an argument that introverts like to be at home. There's a bit, bit of a different environment. So it's getting that balance of you've got your head office, you've got an office where people can go to. You've got your local hub in your town centre near where you live, where you, if you just want to change the scenery or you've got better facilities or you've got people working at home. But we've got to remember that a lot of people working from home aren't doing it in the best environment. They, they haven't got home offices with the great chairs, the great internet connection and all the kit. A lot of people are still working on the kitchen table or the living room table. And they need we need people to be working in a better environment than that. And, and, of course, we're talking about people who can work elsewhere from where their head office is. You know, an awful lot of people still have to go into work. You know, your retail, your tourism, your hospitality, your manufacturing, there isn't that choice. But more people working locally, it's, it's a bit of a wider agenda for me, which you two know I can bore you about. It's about reviving those local towns and high streets. Rich just mentioned tra Transport for Wales being in pont Pre-COVID, if that was full, that should have been a real boom for Pontypridd. And I'm not saying it won't be, but if we have more people working in Pontypridd, you've got more people in the high street. You know, there are big opportunities, unintended consequences of a lot of what we're talking about, which could play out quite nicely for a lot of areas that have seen a lot of decline in recent decades. So should we talk about something that's really uh, simple? Who do we want to win the US election? You want to listen to a, a pod we did a few weeks ago, Matt? Well, quite, yeah. We all, we all came down fairly conclusively, including our Welsh-American guests, on our, on our Welsh-American uh, friend, Mr Biden. I mean, hasn't Trump, <laughs> hasn't Trump actually in the last couple of days gone on he's a, big, a big rant? He's, he's not from Scranton, which is like uh, your you know, incredible bit of Joe Biden pop trivia. He is from Scranton. Oh, no, oh, Trump's gone uh, gone wild on this. He's not actually from Scranton. I think he's worried about losing Pennsylvania. Is he, is he asking for Joe's birth certificate? <laughs> Probably. Oh. A Joe Biden birther. Never thought that would be the case. No, but we didn't get to hear Rich's view, obviously, because he was our producer extraordinaire on, on the uh, US episode. So we didn't it, get to think it, what he thinks is going to happen. I'm a big Trumper. Make, make I was going to say... <laughs> <laughs> the the thing about American politics and certainly in American presidential uh, contests, they are always carnivalesque, and I love that. You know, it's like a it's like a guilty habit um, uh, following American politics, and I I am I'm genuinely excited 
about this American election because it will be a car crash no matter what happens. If Trump loses conclusively, it will be he will go on an absolutely self-destructive explosion and it will be, you know, lovely to watch. Um, if he, he loses slightly, um, just by a small degree, or maybe there's a contentious state here or there, we're going to have that year 2000 Supreme Court wrangling stuff no matter what. And that will be fascinating. I mean, and if Biden wins and, you know, wins conclusively, my God, won't it be lovely to watch the stables being cleaned of all of the evils and, yeah, frankly, deplorables that have been running uh, the US administration. So, I mean, why do people watch TV? You know, why watch TV when you can watch the real Game of Thrones taking place over (laughs) in Washington? One of the things that has been extraordinary in this campaign is the, um, the comms, Biden is a terrible candidate. He's he's he is a nothing candidate. He's you know past his best. He certainly has a strong historical story, but he's nowhere near the man that he was even during the Obama years. And so I I, I don't even think it's that worth talking about Biden in any way, shape, or form because frankly his campaign doesn't. But the stuff that that campaign is doing in terms of putting out really powerful um, messaging, uh, particularly the video messaging about the value of voting in 2020 is just extraordinary. And you combine that then with the Lincoln Project, who are putting out the the sort of never Trump stuff on behalf of Republicans. It has been a masterclass in so many ways of the kind of stuff that those two campaigns have put out. And I think it's, I think there's a lot to learn, actually. I think, I think, you know, I don't like the individualistic nature of American politics, but I think we could learn a lot from what has happened over the last few years, particularly, I don't know what the next thing will be after Brexit, but if it is an anti-devolutionary campaign from different actors in the UK, I think we are starting to see what works uh, against those campaigns, which seem so indestructible between 2015, 2016, 2017. Um, Anyway, yes, how about you guys? What do you guys think of the latest state of play Two debates in. I nearly put a bet on Trump the other day, just because, one, you can get all right odds. Two, I have, and I imagine a lot of people think this, election results have been so bad now for years that all the hope is gone for me in elections. And I've just, I just can't help but feel like something's going to go horribly wrong and Biden's going to lose somehow. And because of the nature of their system, the Electoral College, it could quite easily go that way. I mean, Trump's not going to suddenly come and win New York or California, but he could hang on to Florida. He could hang on to Ohio. He could hang on to Michigan. He could just about hang on to Pennsylvania. I mean, a lot of those states, the reason he won them was because the turnout was really low and he won them by the tiniest, tiniest margins. So the likelihood is he probably won't. But no one thought he was going to win last time. I don't even think he thought he was going to win last time. So part of me, I think, refuses to think that he he won't win. Uh, And I mean, like you, Rich, I think he's not a very good candidate. I mean, to me, he's a conservative. He's what would be a conservative in the UK. And I'm not in the business of voting for him. But he's obviously better than Trump. The hope, the one good election that we can all cling to is New Zealand. You look at that and you think, well, actually, there is hope. You know, these things can be done. And if Trump loses and preferably gets a bit of a hiding, I think that bodes very well because the cycle of bitterness, divisiveness and really ugly personal campaigning is not sustainable in the long term. It escalates quickly and eventually it implodes. And then, you know, you do need somebody who is a stabilizing figure to come in. 
and you know whether that might be the case in England with Starmer whether that is currently the case well you know Mark Drayford wasn't elected in quite the same way but I think you know you know you look at what a Biden pre uh, presidency could bring and basically at the moment it doesn't tell you much about what will happen you know at all you said Biden becomes president everything just becomes a little bit less horrible and I think everyone would vote for that right now you know um, and that's maybe the start of uh, you know the western spring or whatever you know we, we have our own getting rid of you know quasi or wannabe dictators. Keir is if you look at the numbers more popular than Boris he's a calm he's like I said he's a calm point storm he's, he's not out there to, to rock the boat. Mm -hmm. um, Jacinda Ardern who is uh, famous now respected across the globe it was amazing to watch her win being a little hungover in bed last Saturday, shocked that, well, not shocked that she won, but pleased to find out she'd won because I haven't seen a Labour victory now for quite some time. <laughs> and uh, it was it was just, uh, it was refreshing. It was really refreshing. You know, I, it, one of the things that I, I hadn't really made the association with um, was how little the Welsh government has done, given that it is a, you know, Wales is a very similar country in so many ways to New Zealand. You know, how there are no formal links between the Welsh government and the New Zealand government, despite the current administrations being, you know, of the same family. And I thought, you know, if I was the Welsh government right now, if I was, you know, a Leonard, no, it's not Leonard Morgan anymore. Who is it? It's Mark Drakeford now, isn't Mark it? Mark Drakeford is international. Is international. Yeah. I would be definitely leaning into that, as particularly with an election on the horizon next year. I thought, I, I think that they should be doing more than that. Now, of course, that will induce howls of derision from those who see any international relations as devolved. But, you know, I think what we've seen recently is that those, those fairly sketchy rules of devolution are being broken all and sundry all over the place right now. And I think, you know, if you can read between the lines a little bit, I think it would be a very healthy thing to do for Wales and New Zealand. And, you know, politically, it would be very healthy for the Welsh Labour Party to do as well. So what you're saying, Rich, is that you think that Welsh Labour in May, for the first time in history since that electoral system was introduced, is going to win a majority in the Senate? I'll be honest with you. If they, <laughs> if they up their game, I think they could. Everyone says all the time, and, and you know, Wales is trickier than Scotland, perhaps, in this regard, that it's impossible to win a majority. Actually, I don't believe that's don't the case. I think it is, no. I think that what has been a problem is that Welsh Labour has frequently shown itself to be an ambitious in campaigning and um, um, perhaps maybe unambitious in government arguably as well. And I think it's possible in the right circumstances and next year, frankly, might be the right circumstances, particularly if the UK government's handling of coronavirus or Brexit, you know, the end of the transition period is bumpy. Those might be the right circumstances. I don't think it's impossible, but it might take a more dynamic leader than Mark Drakeford to do that. It was interesting that the Greens actually did really well in New Zealand last weekend as well. In terms of next year's Senate election, I think when we first started discussing on the pod what was going to happen, we always said there's an awful lot of water to flow under the bridge and it's flowing really, really fast. COVID is an awful thing, but the handling by Welsh Labour in comparison with Conservatives in England puts Welsh Labour in a very, very good light, no matter the little bits and pieces we can joke around about essential items, things like that. Mark is coming across as a safe pair of hands. And you've also got Brexit, the internal market bill. You've got big ticket items, which I think all three of us would say are only going to go and help Welsh Labour in the next six months. So, yeah, I, I still can't see a majority, 
but I, I certainly think Labour are in a far better position today than they were when we were first talking it in our early pods. I, I mean, Drakeford has his moments. He absolutely has his moments of, of being very inspirational. He, when he talks about social justice issues, he really cares. I think there's a video that he's done that's come out today, last few days, where he, he talks about how Wales was the first country in the world to ever have free school meals. And he talks about the Fabian Society and their plan to have uh, free school meals and, and the, 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 the pamphlet being called And They Shall Have Flowers on the Table fitting into this long-standing labor thing of bread is what we fight for but we fight for roses too the idea that you fight for more than just what you need to survive and when he talks like that he's incredibly inspiring but it, i don't know i don't know if that transcends beyond labor people you don't you just don't see enough of that you know, you're right he does he does shine in certain quarters but he you just need a little bit more poetry to balance out the uh well social science thesis or prose or whatever <laughs> anyway right i think we're close to wrapping up so as we made such heavy comment on the united states upcoming election do we want to talk a little bit about what we might have in the pipeline indeed uh, our current plan is to do a, a little watch along with everybody um so we plan to start about 11 o'clock, something like that, the night of the elections coming in and go all the way through to about four or five in the morning, see what time the results come in, depending on that. But we think we're going to have a couple of people on uh, the show, a couple of our, hopefully a couple of our guests from our, our pod that we did. Former guests and, from other pods as well. Perhaps. And indeed, and we will be inviting some former guests on from, from other pods, uh, getting some of my uh, American friends in Alu Wales on as well to talk about things. So that is what we plan to do. So we will be going live on the 3rd of November, I believe, Tuesday the 3rd of November, all three of us there. Um, and yeah, we can't, I don't think we can, I think we're all really looking forward to, to spending that night with you because we'll be able to get a bit of a Welsh voice on American proceedings. Yeah, absolutely. And do be in touch. Um, and if you'd like to be on, uh, you know, it's going to be interesting. doesn't matter what, you know, what else, yeah. whatever happens, whatever the results, uh, it's going to be fascinating. So yeah, do join. And I guess we should probably sign off in the usual way, Matt. If you like what you've heard this evening, please find us on Medium at Here I Flog Cymru, on Facebook at Here I Flog Cymru, and on Twitter at Here I Flog. Thank you for listening to Here I. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review.